Welcome to the show. In this one, I have a conversation with Chef Laura Cole. Laura grew up with a strong sense of duty to community and a refined palate. Both were instilled in her by her parents and continue to influence her taste and her actions to this day. In 2019, Laura was a contestant on Top Chef, an experience that she says gave her some of her closest friends. Today, she splits her seasons between her restaurant near Denali National Park called 229 Restaurant and Tavern, and Muse, the restaurant at the Anchorage Museum. She says that in all her professional endeavors, she has a mantra, which is to nourish and nurture all those who come to our table. Okay, time to give the Crude Company men a shout out. These are the people who have subscribed to the Crude Patreon for $50 or more. Trina Duber, Seward Brewing Company, The Grind Coffee Shop in Juneau, Derek Adolph, Blue and Gold Board Shop, Sharon Liska, and Alaska Surf Adventure. Thank you to all the Patreon subscribers. This podcast wouldn't be possible without you. If you subscribe to the Crude Magazine Patreon, thank you. Your money helps keep these conversations going. So if you enjoy these conversations, you can subscribe at www.patreon.com slash crude magazine. That's patreon.com slash crude magazine. And pick the subscription tier that works for you. Okay, back to Laura Cole. When Laura talks about food, she talks about it in relation to memories. How a certain food or meal can leave an indelible impression. How a good meal with good company and good conversation can be remembered forever. Laura calls these food memories, and she's constantly trying to create them. So here she is, Laura Cole. (laughs) This red light right here, it means we're recording. Okay, fired up. Crude Conversations. Listen more than you talk. Go to work. Can you hear me? I can hear you loud and clear. Loud and clear. Okay, perfect. Welcome to the show, Laura. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. So since I know we'll be talking about cooking, I wanted to start this conversation off by telling you that I don't cook that often. A lot of people don't. (laughs) And that generally I just eat a lot of sandwiches. Who doesn't love a sandwich? (laughs) Do you have a favorite sandwich? I, like endlessly, anything can be in a sandwich. And um, the one thing that I've been working with recently is reindeer heart. And I make reindeer heart pastrami. And I make it like a big mile high New York reindeer heart pastrami sandwich. How did it come to be that you started making a reindeer heart pastrami sandwich? Um, I have a portion of a reindeer herd. Uh, in northern Alaska, and I do whole animal slaughters, and I like to use the whole animal. So I make uh, reindeer liver pate, and I use the organ meat to make hot dogs, and I had all these hearts, and I just thought it would be a great, because it's so tough, it's just all muscle, to uh, make it pastrami style. So it sits in a, um, basically like a two-week pastrami brine and then uh, we cook it off and shave it really thin and it's uh, it's an Alaskan pastrami sandwich. These hearts that you said you had a lot of, are they just in like a tub? 
No, I get one heart per slaughter. Oh, I see. I see. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and I freeze them until I have enough to um, to like qualify making something with with the organ meat. So like, you know, reindeers themselves um, have a hanging weight of about, you know, anywhere between 200 and like 380 pounds. And uh, there's our older animal slaughters, but and not all the organ meat gets USDA approved because sometimes there's contaminants and it's a very strict approval process. But then once you get the organ meat, I feel it's my job to make sure I qualify that animal and utilize everything. That's yeah. great. It's delicious. You should try one. <laughs> I, I would love to try one. So are caribou and reindeer the same animal, but one is just domesticated? Or That's is exactly that- right. And you cannot serve wild game um, it, just anywhere. But you have to have anything I serve commercially has to be USDA inspected. So it has to be the difference between the wild to d- domesticated animal. Okay. But it's actually the only real sustainable animal, like large mammal for Alaska to like herd and breed versus, I mean, you can do lamb and sheep and pig, but you cattle won't sustain in the state. Just it's too cold, the rest of it, but like caribou and then the, you know, manipulation to the, to the reindeer works perfectly for the state, for the impact, the environmental impacts, for the herding qualities, for the atmosphere, for everything. And so it's a shame that there isn't a bigger push to develop more of that as a natural resource for our state. You know, Alaska is is unique in that way where we have, like you said, you have to have like these cold weather animals that are sustainable. You being a chef and using that meat, I'm sure you've learned a lot about Alaskan animals. This is an environment that we're lucky to have and be a part of and to be able to sustain and help further the conversation of the food web and footprint for what it means to have like an economic base, like a natural base, a nourishing base here in the state. The footprint is enormous, but um, yeah, I mean, I, it's farm to table. You know, and I don't mean mm. that in cliche ways. I, I mean that it's I get my greens down on the mail truck from Fairbanks to Denali and then the excess greens I bring from Denali back to Anchorage. And I work with foragers and farmers and ranchers and fishermen. And it's about telling the story of what our state has to provide without the added enhancements of antibiotics, chemicals, you know, any of the negative impacts that the food industry has had in the lower 48. That's interesting. I always I always like thinking of food and meals as like they're more important than just, you know, sustenance, right? It's where the food came from as well as like what a meal represents, you know, with with family, with friends. I mean, do you have any like personal philosophies about food? Our mission statement for all of my um organizations and everybody that works with me is to nourish and nurture all those who come to our table. And that means purveyors, that means fishermen, that means ranchers, that means customers, that means employees. That's It's to nourish and nurture. And in this state right now, we have one of the most extraordinary gifts ever because our waters are not polluted. Our ground is not just 
festered with antibiotics and like horrible chemicals to like produce a bigger growing season. And with everything that's going on with like different growth seasons, different like fishery seasons, the whole thing, it, you know, the dynamics of what we're looking at in the state are, are pretty incredible. But we also rely so heavily on the lower 48 for everything. And we've come so far away from the day where people kept caches. People don't even know what caches are anymore. And to grab the bounty of the state and make sure that you can sustain yourself through the winter. I mean, the roadkill list, people are still like gobsmacked about that. That's a reality. But, you know, I mean, it is a reality. And that's how a lot of people in the interior survive in the winter. The roadkill list? Yeah, so that's for moose and caribou that are on the road, and mm-hmm. you you just sign up with the state troopers, and if there's a kill near you, then they call you, and you can harvest the meat, and you can feed your dog team, you can feed your community, you can feed your family, you know, it depends on, and then it gets, there's so many kills on the road right now, I mean, I regret to say this, I get a little bougie about it. I'm like, well, if it's like not the right temperature and not right outside my door, I'm not going to go get that animal. <laughs> but um, but there's, it's it's such a brilliant like gift back. And, and, and you don't necessarily have to be a hunter. You don't have to, but you can still provide so much in mm-hmm. so many ways. You can't serve that commercially, which is fine. Um, and then that translates though into the fact that whatever meat you're harvesting from that becomes the healthiest meat that you're going to put in your body because it doesn't have any chemicals, any antibiotics, any stimulants to grow the muscle tone faster or that sort of thing. And then it's just eating the elements that are around you with within spruce and branches and the rest of it. And then to translate that into what we can actually sustain as a herd animal here, that sort of thing, it's still eating the same stuff. It's still part of the same picture. It's uh it's a bigger, um, it's a bigger circle, and a lot of people don't think about all those choices. But it also goes back to what you were saying. It, it's the fisherman's family that he's going home to, or she's going home to, and they're having their, you know, family tradition or their, you know, school night supper or whatever, and whatever impact you had to purchase to make the choice to purchase that over something else that that might be commercially fished or farm fished in the lower 48 you're enhancing what is going to become the dialogue of this whole state for forever and it's really important i always say vote with your fork you know like it's a a really important thing to think about okay so i have two questions now the first one is since you just mentioned it can you explain vote with your fork a little bit more just every day you make decisions across the board and and everybody can own their decisions. You can you can decide, yes, I really, really am craving this McDonald's hamburger and I can I and that's what I want, so I'm gonna get it. Or you can say, I'm I I really wanna make a bigger impact and I'm going to like source out something local and I'm gonna make something different with that. And there's nothing wrong with one decision or the other. You should, for me, because I'm a chef and I'm in the culinary industry and I really am passionate about that, that those are the choices that I make and that I try and help educate people on thinking a little bit before they're at, you know, Fred Meyers buying a, you know, thing of like commercially raised lettuce that might look really appealing to you, but it's coming from Mexico and it's traveled, the environmental impact of it and then the cost impact of it and the rest of it doesn't reflect back into 
like somebody having a better lifestyle and you having a better quality product in your body that makes you feel healthier versus eating a parsnip that might be, you know, from the fall harvest and it's winter and it's a little wilted or whatever. And mm -hmm. but you you're going to get more nutrients. You're going to have a bigger impact with that. And so when I say vote with your fork, make your choices, especially when you're trying to everybody likes to talk a big game about being involved or being and 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 the talk is great and the process for that dialogue is amazing and then it comes down to like what decisions are you actually making that enforce beyond the conversation mm -hmm. so voting with your fork the thing that comes to mind is that uh getting the local stuff is generally going to be more expensive right it should be because you're supporting a different infrastructure and lifestyle and you're also putting better things into your body, but also creating a better community around you to be able to help support and create a, a lifestyle that farmers and ranchers and fishermen can all live off of. And then you, it, it's, it's not about how many dollars you have in the bank. It's about how great a community you're able to build. How would you convince somebody who is living kind of paycheck to paycheck, shopping at Walmart, to go to the farmer's market instead? Well, I mean, I, in, in all honesty, I would say I, I, there's a bunch of things I would say, but I've done a lot of work for, for the welfare to work program and single dish meals that you make on Sundays and freeze for the week, shopping on food stamps, just making some better choices. And it doesn't mean you have to go like whole, like, whole table all the time, but be conscious and conscientious about the decisions you're making and try and enhance some of that to translate back into building community. And if you go to the farmer's market at the end of the day, none of those people want to bring that stuff back, you know, and none of the farmers want to take their wares back to their farm and not sell them. And so at the end of the day is you might not get the prime, you might not get the best picks, but you can. And I always tell people before they leave town, I'll take whatever you have left. I want everybody to shop as much as they can. And then before you leave, I'll take whatever you have left. Mm -hmm. and, um, and then I have a really open door philosophy in my kitchens that if you are interested at all, just stop by. You, you can come by with a bushel of stuff and be like, I don't know what to do with this. And we'll help you make something out of it. So somebody could come to uh, Muse, Muse, yeah, at the museum yeah. or your restaurant in Denali, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and just drop vegetables or whatever off. No, they would have to participate in the processing. Okay. But, oh no, but like if for me to purchase, yeah, all okay. the time. Yeah, I'll take I, I take everything all the time. <laughs> <laughs> okay. But if you're shopping for yourself or you're trying to shop on a budget and make some different, you know, ethical and conscientious decisions, but you don't know what to do with it because a lot of people don't know what to do with it. I mean, just like you said, you don't cook very often. And mm -hmm. so you're, you know, there's somebody that gives you a couple stocks of Brussels sprouts. What are you going to do? You don't know what to do. You don't want to waste that. Just stop on by. I'll help you make something. You mean like if I brought you ingredients, you'd help me cook it? Yeah. That is amazing. <laughs> I might have to take you up on that. I, it's, I tell it to people all the time. It's an open door. That's great. So when you're not working, what kind of meals do you cook for yourself? People will find this really funny because um, I work all the time. <laughs> and I, it's like 
it's also my like safety zone. It's my haven. I I love I love kitchens and I love working. And so when I'm not working, I tend to eat not a lot. I make a lot of popcorn. Um, I make different butters. I take like the crab shells and then I boil them down into butter. So I have crab butter and then I make like crab butter popcorn or I make a lot of popcorn. And uh, I do the same thing with I I make a lot of soup um, because I can pull it out whenever and it's a quick grab and go. Okay. Um, I drive a lot between Anchorage and Denali. And so road snacks have kind of been my like that's the time where I'm not in between two destinations and uh, where I'm like, I should eat something. Artichokes do not make a good road snack. (laughs) (laughs) Why is that? It's impossible to eat. And for some reason, I'm horribly attracted to artichokes. And I like, (laughs) so then I have like a whole artichoke and like a dipping sauce and I'm trying to eat it and dry. It's um, any state troopers that might be listening, like look out for my car. (laughs) But but legitimately, it's, um, I... I nosh all the time. Like as a chef, somebody who's in the kitchen on the line all the time, I'm constantly tasting things, eating bites of things. So I don't really sit down for meals. And I get a little um, uncomfortable when I actually have to sit down for a meal because I feel like everybody's watching me. Like, is she going to eat this? Is it good? Or is it? And I uh, it's. Um, I think I derive all my food pleasures from creating it and tasting it and eating it on the go. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, but I, I, I mean, everybody does. You have, you have your senses and you talk through your senses and food sensory has always been really important to me. And, uh, for my dad's, uh, 60th, was it 60 or 70th, 70th birthday, I, uh, created a whole menu for him just based on the food memories that he gave to me. Oh, that's up. great. And, and those are still influences on me. And I think about people that get to work with me or eat my food or have these. And I think maybe I'm creating a food memory for them. My wife's uh, family put together this cookbook a couple years back. And um, it is recipes passed down from, you know, specifically my wife's grandfather and mm-hmm. grandmother. And I'm sure, you know, their lineage as well. But it's really cool because it's like, you know, when you think about food, you think about like the ingredients, like you think you also think about the memories that came with these things. Mm-hmm. And so that, that's what I'm kind of thinking about with with what you created. Yeah. Well, no, it's just it's it's a very sensory experience. And I mean, I'm 47 years old. So like when you go back to thinking about like people used to have like little recipe card things in their cupboards and they would like file through and find their little index card of their like, you know, biscuit recipe and and they would follow it to the T. And but those ingredients have changed over the years. So the salt content in butter has changed over the past 20 years. And so the recipe won't translate exactly the same. And so then people are constantly trying to like understand how to nudge this stuff back to their memory. But then they get defeated because they're like, well, I made it based on this, but it doesn't taste the way I remember it tasting. And there's a huge amount of that food sensory memory board that does not, that that can't be replicated unless you actually think about and understand what you're putting into it, you know? And and, and I, that's part of where I come in 
to a lot of people's narrative is with my open door policy and kids and adults and whoever coming in and out of the kitchen. Like I want, I want them to build like that narrative for themselves and I want to be able to help them. Wow. That's super interesting. I, I've never thought about the fact that salt content and butter has changed and all these different ingredients within the, like these foundational ingredients, right? Yeah. Has completely changed. So yeah. in order to get, say, the macaroni and cheese that your mom used to make when you were five, maybe it's impossible to recreate. I don't think it's impossible to recreate. I think that you're going to have to like evolve that I think it's possible to recreate off of the recipe card that you might be referring to. Okay. And you're going to have to evolve that to your flavor memory palette sense and like learn a little bit more about ingredients. I mean, certainly, I mean, cheese, I mean, alone, that, that that's a ridiculous one to bring up because between the USDA and like pasteurization processes from now to 50 years ago to like uh, all the cheeses in Europe or the rest of it, but even to what the cow is eating mm -hmm. and how it's producing that milk in what production faction it's producing that milk between it, whether it's milks in the morning or the afternoon, whether that like grass is settled in its stomach or not creates a different whole enzyme breakdown. And there is two, there, there's a series of great books that I buy everybody who comes into my kitchen and server staff, front of the house, whatever. It's what Einstein told his cook. And I just think that learning the science behind some of it helps demystify and empowers people to really feel like they're looking at like their plate a little differently. Sorry, I'm I'm just I'm so mesmerized by all this. This is <laughs> really great. You know, I it's one of those things that we all eat. You know, humans yeah. have to eat. So yeah. It's, these it's little, fuel. Exactly. Yes. And so it's these things that we just don't think about. You know, like you mentioned McDonald's. I think I had McDonald's at least once this week, and I hate myself for it after no, I do it. No, there's really nothing wrong with it, though. Like, understanding that you, like, and there's nothing wrong with scale and operations and that sort of thing, but it's just understanding the choices and decisions you make. Are you getting that for quick substance and fuel? And, you know, I mean especially chains like McDonald's or whatever, they have mastered fast food to the point where they're providing a level of nutrition, a level of safety, a level of sanitation at a low dollar point for like a quick nutritional fix. Mm -hmm. I, I am not saying there's anything wrong with that at all. I just think that I'm driven by a little bit of a different directive. And so I, I think all these voices at the table are really important. And I, I, it's like Halloween candy. Is it bad to have candy? Who doesn't want candy? But should you have a diet on candy? Probably not. Probably you know? not. And so there's a, there's a system of checks and balances. And to understand personally, I'm making this decision right now. It's great. This isn't my entire like lifestyle. I'm not eating McDonald's three times a day because mm -hmm. that's just not healthy for you. And you're not... Your body's also a machine. So that's the fuel you're putting into your machine, like the fuel you're putting into your car. And every so often you need an oil change. And every so often you have to wash the fluids. And <laughs> that's what food does to your body. It's it, But then thinking about the bigger impact of that when we live in such a delicate infrastructure here being Alaska, it, then somebody who's chosen this as a career and a craft and a directive, it's, it's sort of my obligation to be able to educate people in feeling empowered to make some choices a little differently to support not only their bodies but their community well and knowing 
those people, I mean, including myself, knowing that you can break that cycle, that you you don't have to go to McDonald's, that you can go to the store. And whenever I look at, um, say, the, the vegetable aisle, it's kind of daunting. You know, I know that I'm going to get apples. I know that I'm going to get lettuce. I know that I'm going to get carrots, those types of things. But I also know that those are ingredients. I'll eat them individually, but I also know that they're ingredients. And that, to me, is kind of daunting to be like, what can I create with this? So last summer I taught, and actually at um, at the um, I, d- I did a little bit of this 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 fall at Hutch, but um, which is the career center here in town. Um, I teach just on beets because I am obsessed with beets, and it's one of Alaska's greatest harvests. Our beets are so sweet, and we are, you're able to get them, and you're able to, to sustain and keep them through like in a cache or a root cellar all winter long, and. People just are like, what do I do with a beet, you know? And right now I teach people how to make beet pasta, beet ice cream, beet ketchup, you know, and you get to infuse all of this flavor base and vitamin quality, support local economy, and you can still have your French fries. You're just yeah. having it with a beet ketchup, you know, and and hopefully with an Alaskan potato. <laughs> but, um, but that it's a... Uh, it, it's looking at the ingredient and not looking at it as like, this is a beet. You know, you can make a chip out of it. You can dehydrate it and grind it into a powder. And you can coat a piece of salmon with it. And it puts this great earthy, sugary flavor onto the salmon and bleeds that right into the flesh of the salmon. And it's all tying in that infrastructure. And it's legitimately dirt cheap. And it is so rich in iron and like so many different vitamin nutrients. And it's it's a crazy little bulb of of a vegetable that a lot of people are like, I don't like beets. I'm like, oh, I don't think you know really what to do with the beet. <laughs> <laughs> what got you on this this beet path? What started it? Well, they're gorgeous, and they're it's it's an easy harvest. I'm not gonna lie; like whatever you can get easy out of the Alaska ground, I'm like down for. I I am not a, a struggled farmer. I'm an ease farmer, and uh, beets are hardy. They um, you can use the greens, you can use the stalks, you can use the bulb. It's a whole vegetable thing that's got no waste, and uh, it's easy to grow here. And they grow prolifically, and they grow large, and then they keep for the winter, and so. But I wasn't ever a big fan of beets. I don't like pickled beets, but a lot of people do. So uh, I don't like beet juice, but a lot of people do. But I was like, this is something that I have a lot of. So what am I going to do with it? And, and you know, I just started like manipulating it. And it's really fun to teach people for something you can get for a quarter. You can make out of one beet, you know, three different meals or one meal of three different courses and ending with like a beet ice cream or a beet macaroon or something. And, and you can eat the entire vegetable. Do you ever feel like you're fighting an uphill battle with beets because beets have this, uh, beets have this impression that they're for old people. I think beets have an impression that they're for poor people. Oh, they, you, okay. Like if you looked at my menu, I mean, I have white beans, I have chickpeas, I have, you know, I, and people are like, oh, I don't like that. Or I don't, you know, they, I don't, I don't know what all the associations are, but I'm not daunted by them at all. Like I, I, like I will utilize what I have that represents this, the person and the education that I want to carry forward. And, uh, and so, 
No, I like when people challenge me when they say like, I don't like lamb. And I'm like, well, you don't really know that. Like, let me, <laughs> let me, let me fix that for you. And I mean, a lot of people, I mean, and ridiculously, a lot of Alaskans don't like seafood because they've been plied with it their whole life. You know, they have, you know, year old freezer salmon and in home freezers, it's hard to keep salmon. Like, I mean, now everybody can like, you know, vac seal theirs and that stuff. But like, that wasn't, that wasn't the case 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. And so you would have like basically year old freezer burnt salmon that people were making into like salmon pot pies and like, you know, at the end of the season to get through to the next season. And that salmon is so rich in omega threes. It's so good for you. It's very healthy. It's like, it, it is a wonderful thing, but it tasted fishy strong and like and 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 a lot of people are put off it and i was like give me another chance let me let me like re-educate you on this mm -hmm. and the one of my favorite things to do is work with only frozen salmon when it's out of season and do a side-by-side -side tasting of you know the the five species of salmon with different dipping sauces like a salmon sampler because i mean people don't traditionally tend to think you know dogfish is a fish that they would buy to eat but it, and what the different fat contents are in the, like the salmon spectrum and everybody likes king silver red you know but then mm -hmm. you go down the chain and people are like no <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and it's really fun to put it just like and it's all frozen, so it doesn't have any factor of if it's in season or not in season because mm -hmm. everybody has to be educated also on like how to utilize what's what they got and what's already in their freezer. You know, one thing that I've always thought is kind of funny about people who eat fish, whether they like it or whether they're, you know, just trying it, you know, knowing that they don't like it, but testing it out, is that it always comes down to is it fishy or not? And it's a fish. So, of course, it's going to taste like a fish, but it can taste either more fishy or less fishy. Well, that's just in the fat content, the oil content, the harvest time, the storage, uh, like a lot of things. But none of that's bad. I mean, and people take omega-3 pills like mm -hmm. to get that fish oil back in them for yeah, some yeah. reason. But they're like, I don't like fish, but like I'll take the omega-3. <laughs> but they'll have like the fish you're burps. Like, you're like, oh, okay. Um, uh so, and I mean, a lot of people don't, so people don't like things texturally. My kid does not like mashed potatoes. He, he thinks they taste like, he, he describes it as an old person's foot. <laughs> <laughs> How did he make that association? I, I have no clue. Like he has a mind of his own. And, uh, but I, I, I appreciate the fact that it's like a, a tactile thing for him and he doesn't like soft food he doesn't like polenta he doesn't like and it's really interesting in learning not just from my palate but somebody that i'm so intimate with as my child to watch him cultivate and grow his palate and all of his friends have been in the restaurant with me cooking since they could stand and so i know them like one of his friends and it's so interesting one of his friends has greek heritage and he loves octopus and huh. none of the rest of the kids will eat the octopus but every time and now he's like 19 he brings dates into the restaurant the rest of it and they always order the octopus which is i find charming and um but also it's like the evolution of a palate and just making sure you're giving people enough tools that they have um they have enough education and then they have enough 
built into how their body breaks down these things that they're, you know, because if you haven't, that that's the other thing too. And it's hard. You can't all of a sudden just go to a diet of like kale and chard and the rest of it if you haven't been eating like that because your body is not used to processing that mm-hmm. and it becomes difficult. And so then people are like, I'm just going to go get that bag of chips and sauce from the store or whatever because I'm used to that and that's what your body can break down. But your body's grabbing onto more harmful ingredients inside of it than healthful ingredients. And so you have to train your body like a machine Work out your like, you know, stomach muscles, work out your intestinal muscles so that you're able to grab all the nutrients and process more like raw and like not altered ingredients. So there's this theory. I I forget the name, but it says that people function better in their kind of original home of origin and eating that food. So there's there's a lot of different <laughs> concepts on that, but um, everybody has these diet fads. Like, I mean, it was like, oh, oat bran was really big at one time, and nobody talks about oat bran anymore. And, you know, there you had the Atkins diet, and nobody mm-hmm. talks about that anymore. And then you have – so you have these the grapefruit diet of, like, the <laughs> 80s where, like, everybody was like, oh, I'm on a grapefruit diet or, you know. Does that mean you're just eating a grapefruit? Basically, like, and, and so you're using all of that acidity to like break down the enzymes in your stomach to sort of do like a natural colonoscopy. But, um, oh, I see. Okay. But uh, it's, um, and then the cabbage diet, that was a big diet for a while. And I just, I, everybody wants to grab onto a fad, but if you break down all those fads and put it into like a big, you know, bigger picture, you're, um, everybody's striving like for sort of that quick, health break or that quick weight loss or that quick, you know, going to give me more energy, going to, you know, have better blood circulation or, and, and it's more about adapting. And everybody always says this, like adapting a lifestyle, but the diet you're referring to, they call the Viking diet. Oh, okay, okay. <laughs> and, uh, and it's about eating where you're from. So if you are naturally like, you know, Nordic as we are up here, you're a, a diet that's based more on foraging with um, small amounts of meat to supplement that. And, you know, we also have like the value added of like sea kelp and sea lettuce and like looking at the different like benefits from eating from the ocean. But uh, it's um, also it's not convenient. Mm-hmm. And the reality of it is like life has to be convenient. We are so busy. We're going in a million directions. Not everybody wants to spend their day foraging, cooking, cleaning, all the rest of it. So how are you going to adapt these things into like a lifestyle that's just more acceptable and healthy? And that's the bridge. That's the conversation. So my mom is very health conscious and she told me this story about um, kind of a, a carnivore versus a vegetarian or someone who has more of a vegetarian diet I should say not a I don't think it was like a strict vegetarian it's a vegetable based diet but you you had these two cadavers kind of side by side in this analogy and one was somebody who ate meat their entire life like big steaks the other one was somebody who focused more on vegetables and in the meat eater their stomach was kind of like pallid and sickly looking, you know, their intestines, whereas the 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 person that ate more vegetable-based diet, their stomach was like pink and kind of healthy looking. They're, not their stomach, but their, you know, their intestines. So I uh I have I have multiple opinions on this. 
But um, any vegetables, if you do not know the source of where they're coming from, the amount of chemicals that have been dumped onto them or dumped into the ground because they are so rich in water, you are basically eating those chemicals into your body. Mm. And so if you're a vegetarian-based diet that is not actually really acknowledging where you're sourcing like including legumes and everything from that you are eating basically roundup by the tablespoon and roundup that's a uh fertilizer okay uh that is used to like manipulate growth um and it is cancerous uh Mm. and it is incredibly harmful and so that you think you're doing great, I'm just going to have a salad. If you don't know where that salad came from, you're actually potentially putting more chemicals into your body than if you were just eating meat. Mm-hmm. That said, if you're eating a lot of, and regrettably, like in the more affordable cuts or low-grade meat that you're not making choices on, you're also eating a ton of antibiotics that are really bad for your body as well. And so... I don't know like where I land on that whole plant-based diet to meat-based diet. I don't think I think that everybody's body is incredibly different and I think your body tells you what you need mm-hmm. as far as nutrients and you eat accordingly to that. Once you get away from just eating out of convenience or eating out of habit or any of the other things that go along with like dietary issues, but making wise choices to make sure that you're not ingesting unwanted and really unknown chemicals into your body. I mean, there's the whole genetically modified ingredient movement. There's there there's there's the whole anti, you know, antibiotic movement in meat and the rest of that. There's but then we still have this big umbrella of infrastructure uh, you know, with the food safety and the USDA and all the rest of it that we all have to operate under, which was built on trying to protect people from things like you know, foodborne illnesses and um, and all the things that can occur under that umbrella. But we've gotten so far in the other direction now that we're basically just taking chemicals into our body and we're seeing that infrastructure happen in the breakdown of people like getting a whole rash of new cancers and a whole rash of like as they age in life, like really foodborne related long-term illnesses because they've been ingesting harsh chemicals into their system that just builds up in there. You can't process it. And mm-hmm. you and you didn't mean to. You don't know. And so there is something to be said of like 50 years ago where people were, it was, farm to table wasn't cool. It just what was. And yeah. that was what was affordable. I mean, with the age of, you know, in the 1950s, it was way more impressive if you could have a TV dinner than if you made a dinner mm-hmm. from like the farm or from the potatoes that you had or from a roast you got from your neighbor or that sort of thing. It seemed a lot more like you were making it in the world to do that. And we've gotten to that point now where we're generations deep into it where our health is suffering from some of those choices. From conveniency. Yeah. So to your point about uh, biodiversity earlier, before my wife and I got married in 2017, I was like, okay, I'm gonna, I want to lose some weight, you know, before the wedding. And so I, I went like full vegetarian mm-hmm. and I felt like crap like the entire time. But 
then at the wedding, no, this was after the wedding, uh, I had a steak and mm. I I couldn't have felt it better. You know, I was like, I should have just been doing this the entire time. But I, I was telling you, you needed iron. That's what it was telling me? Mm-hmm. Okay. So I should have <laughs> listened to my body earlier. Well, it's just, I mean, you crave, when you crave something, like in its, like, true form like i just want a steak your body wants that for a reason Mm -hmm. you know um when you eat something even if you don't think you you're like wow i feel really good about that like ginger ginger is like just such like a a brilliant like antitoxin like wash through your body i juice maybe 50 pounds of ginger a week and infuse it into everything but not everybody likes ginger that much, you know, because their body doesn't need it the way my body might need it, you know. Um, and it's uh, it's 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 very interesting to learn that sort of nutritional process behind it. But mm-hmm. like, there isn't some blanket diet that works for everybody. There's not some blanket thing. You have to listen to your body, but then follow it with you know like a, an educated directive to how to like give your body like the premium fuel it needs to be the machine and feed your brain and mm-hmm. you know and be able to be kind of the best person and then the impact the umbrella impact of it is that then you are able to create more jobs for your local economy your society more dollars that stay around you support different people's dreams and infrastructures to be ranchers fishermen farmers foragers whatever it's 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 uh it's one of the biggest webs out there but it comes down to every person understanding their wants their desires making their choices and making it's okay like just like i said it's okay to go to mcdonald's Mm -hmm. but know that you're making that choice it's not like oh my god i have to it's like i want this right now so i'm going to give myself this and i'm going to offset it with like you know, something else later, like I'll make myself a farm egg tomorrow morning instead. Mm-hmm. And maybe that craving will subside too. So when you go to the grocery store, they say you should shop around the perimeter, right? Kind of around the canned foods. Have you heard about this? No. So like, I guess- <laughs> I spent the... a lot of time in grocery stores, but go ahead. <laughs> so the perimeter, I guess, is is where like whole foods are. But in that way, it seems like you know, you have the lettuce, you have the carrots, you have the beets, you know, you have all that stuff mm-hmm. that is is a whole food. It just kind of grows from the ground. It's not processed. It seems like we're getting back to an earlier, like, simple time of, like, eating. Like you said earlier, where you had farm to table that wasn't – there. that expression didn't exist because it was just how we ate. But in this state, we would do farm, forage, fish, hunt – and put everything up for the winter. Okay. And so when you talk about canned foods or preserved foods, I would rather eat a canned tomato all winter long than buy a tomato because I know the journey of that tomato and that tomato doesn't value me in any capacity. But, you know, canned tomatoes, when tomato harvests come in, it's enormous and that's what they do. And they put them up at the peak of the season and they eat. And so if you buy like a a source of a canned product that you believe in that is not like influenced by uh, a wash of chemicals, that that's actually probably a more nutritional product for you than buying, you know, your four dollar beautiful looking firm fleshed like tomato at the grocery store where that came from nowhere near here. It had nothing to do with like anything. And Mm -hmm. like 
the transportation of it, the the manipulation of that growth to make it still look pretty after eight days on a truck up here and on a on a shelf at the grocery store in Fairbanks, it, it has nothing of value for you to eat. So there's there is that part of that educational process where it's a hybrid between the two. Man, I'm learning a lot here. <laughs> so canned food isn't bad for you. No, I mean. It, Food in general is what your body needs. It's a fuel. You need to eat. Uh, and so it isn't like bad or good. It's making those choices and understanding what those are, you know. And a lot of canned foods have a lot of sulfites in them. They have a lot of different added sugars and salts. And so you have to read labels and you have to just become a little bit more confident in what some of those decisions are. And then you have to alter your flavor palette a little bit to absorb some more of that intensity. Um, I have a very good friend and she's a doctor and she has like food sensitive slash allergies to so many things. And she's tall and beautiful and skinny and she'll eat something off of her dietary chart and it looks like she has a bread baby in her belly. <laughs> like, it, it, like it is an in, it's like an instant intestinal reaction. And I'm always like, why are you doing this? And she's like, well, it was convenient. And I was like, but it isn't convenient for your body. So let's like formulate this strategic mm -hmm. plan and let, let me let me help you with this so that because you do need convenience, you do need some quick goes and that sort of thing. But you have to also re-educate your mind where, you know, she might want a French fry, but she shouldn't have a French fry. She could have parsnip chips, you know, like create alternatives and then train yourself to eat those just like working out. Nobody likes to start working out. Working out is hard. Mm -hmm. It's time consuming. The first week or two, you're like, this is the worst. But then after <laughs> that, you're like, oh, my God, I feel so much better. I have so much energy. I can't believe I like quit doing this. And, mm -hmm. and for whatever reason, like everybody laps into those cycles of maintaining their personal machine. And people will take care of their cars well better than they'll take care of their bodies. And but that's exactly what it is. Your body is a machine. And we need to like look at all aspects of that and how to create, you know, that better health for ourselves because then we create a better mental self and then we're able to be more productive and prominent in our daily lives. So you mentioned sulfites. Mm -hmm. I have a question that doesn't really have anything to do with food. Mm -hmm. So I'm hoping you can answer it just for my own we'll sake. <laughs> so I read that you uh, went to school in Paris. I did. I did uh, pastry work in Paris. Uh, at um, Actually, I'm certified as a pastry chef um, with the European Pastry Guild, which is a tough thing to get. <laughs> uh, yeah. And it was, uh, it, was, it was a hard and fun time. So I've been to France twice, uh, one back in April with my mm -hmm. wife for a honeymoon. And the first time we went was in 2011. And we heard that one of the reasons that French wine in France, you don't really get as bad of a hangover um, is because of the lack of sulfites in their wine. Is there any truth to that? There's incredible truth to that. There is plenty of sulfites in their wine, but uh, here in the United States with our like very robust wine industry, there's a secondary fermentation where they introduce malolactic acids into it, which create a different sulfite base, which therefore they're able to stabilize because in France, it's not a stabilized thing. So some years, some vintages might have a 7.5 alcohol content and some might have a 9.5 the same year. 
in the United States, based on a lot of different regulations, palette, marketing, the rest of it, we want to create like a vineyard brand where you're getting the same wine year after year after year, even though like growing conditions, fires, heat, you know, drought, whatever affects the vine itself. They manipulate it in the secondary fermentation to create a stabilized product so that people are product identifying um, versus like year identifying, vintage identifying, that sort of thing. And with that, they introduce a level that brings the sugars up and the sulfites to like a certain level that, you know, that it doesn't matter if you're having, you know, a, a, you know, I mean, pick any wine, like from year to year to year, you you're like, oh, I like that wine. Mm -hmm. You're not like, I like that year, you know? And so, and that's how they do it to create, I mean, if you look back to like the history in France of wine and food, and, and it, it tells a much more organic story than we tell in the States. When you go back to the 1950s in the States, like Blue Nun was the wine that people like associated with. Or I've never was, even heard of that. Well, there, there was a couple of, you know, you had your your dry sack sherry, you know, like it, Julia Childs was famous for making sherry like on everybody's like cupboard okay. shelves and that sort of thing. But we didn't have we didn't have a wine industry. It's so new here, and the way that they approached it in the states was to craft brand identification, which would then make sure that your alcohol content, your sugar content, and your flavor profile was the same every year, and it didn't really have to affect what the natural conditions were of that year. And in France, the structure for how they make wine is very government stipulated and it is not it's letting and what they call the terroir um like the ground speak to the the wine mm-hmm. and so you have a much different fluctuation with less manipulation so yes it's true so again Long we, and short <laughs> we come back to conveniency yeah, but there's nothing wrong with that either. I mean, it's it's understanding what some of those things are. And then if you get into wines, you, then you talk about the fact that we can't really get a lot of great French wines here because of the tariffs and because and that's that that becomes a governmental issue on taxes and international trade and the rest of it, but it's it, it is it's the convenience that built into a marketplace that we have adapted to that we expect. I mean, Look at all the big guns in this world. Look at the Coke and Pepsi products. And and, and and again, I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with these things, but I make a choice in my restaurants not to serve anything that has a commercial cornstarch in it. Mm-hmm. And so we don't serve fountain sodas. We make all of our own sodas because I also think that there's value in the process and there's value in educating people on how to do that. But it's also I like the people that make the choice to come all the way to where I'm cooking to not necessarily fall into the mold of convenience. And I think that those are choices that everybody gets to make and I'm making them through my business. That's great. So one thing that I, I wrote down here as you were talking about it was the the cookbook you made for your grandfather, right? Oh, no, it was just, it, oh, your dad. it was my dad, your dad. And it was just, it was just his, it was his birthday menu. And so I dedicated that that entire weekend just to writing menus that brought me back to food memories of him. And so everybody that came and ate at my restaurant had to like, they didn't know my dad at all, but they got to know a little bit of my dad. That's great. My eyes. <laughs> what was one of your favorite things on that menu? I still have so many and every day I build more food memories, but I share my food memories with people that work around me right now. So 
When I was a child and I went to Paris for the first time with my family, uh, my dad and I would go out and, um, and you know, I, there's, I have three siblings, so there's four of us, and we're all vying for individual parent attention. And my parents were very good about trying to like give us each individual time. But my dad and I would go out and we would go like shop for the family for the meal for the day. We spent a couple months over in Europe as a child. And uh, and him and I on our way home would stop off at like a little like ice cream stand. But in Paris, they're like teeny little, it's, it's like two tablespoon scoops. You know, you get a little cone with a, it's, it's not Americanized. In yeah, that. yeah. And, uh, American portions. And um, I would always get the passion fruit sorbet. And I have never, um, that flavor profile has stuck with me my entire life as being a special time with my dad, but a special flavor. And I make that sorbet every day at both of my restaurants. And I incorporate passion fruit into a lot of things because it reminds me of that. And it's something that I think is really beautiful, but it's also something that a lot of people have not even tasted. And even this year, um, my family does Thanksgiving together every year, and there's 12 of us that gather. And every night, one of the children takes a meal. And so at the end of my meal, I just served um, passion fruits cut in half with sugar on them. And it shocked me that most of my family had never eaten a passion fruit raw. Like they, they didn't even know what it looked like. They didn't even know what it was. I can't and even think of a passion fruit right now. <laughs> I, was, I was like, oh my God, this is one of the flavor profiles that I grew up with in my childhood that yeah. like drove me to all of these like different decisions in adulthood. And I'm sharing this with my family, which I've been with since I was born. And they're like, We've never had a passion fruit before. <laughs> I was like, what? So yeah, I mean, it's real interesting. I mean, it, it for me, it's I, and there's all of those surprises that happen all the time. But I think when I think back to the biggest education that my dad, both of my parents, but like certainly my dad was an influencer with me on this, was to like when you find something that you like, learn more about it. Like keep using that as like a as a narrative mm -hmm. to give you interest and education and move forward and uh and i think that i mean my parents were horrible gardeners but they always had this little backyard garden and they would fight to get a tomato every year from the slugs or whatever else that was going on and <laughs> i just remember being we had we grew up having lobster races where they would go to the market and get lobsters and then we would race them across the yard as children and then there before was this, you cooked them, yes, and there was this big <laughs> breakdown into them. You're eating that lobster, <laughs> like, and and I mean, and I mean, both of my sisters are vegetarians. Um, my brother's a big meat eater. Like everybody's got their little. My dad, I didn't know this until like a couple years ago. He has never eaten an egg yolk. Like, it, like how it, does that happen? He only eats scrambled eggs or omelets. I made him eggs Benedict for Christmas breakfast, and he's like, "I don't eat egg yolks." I was like, "What?" 
<laughs> but everybody has their little food things. And it's so interesting as you learn them, they, they, th- that web, that history, that fiber becomes like a different storyline. And I think that the biggest thing that my dad gave me and both of my parents gave me is growing up because they did a lot of cooking. We were the family that had like brought banana bed and cream cheese sandwiches to school. We were the like kids that had ratatouille and clams on a Friday night, not pizza. And we resented it. We were a bunch of skinny kids because we wouldn't eat the food. We were like, oh, <laughs> but uh, we wanted cheeseburgers. We wanted things that we didn't get a lot of. And those became treats and those became choices. And those became things that as we all became adults, we understand as indulgences mm-hmm. in our diet. Um, but uh, they um, they really told us to like to just to just taste, to try, to develop, to grow and to gather experiences through food. So you mentioned that everyone has a food thing. Do yeah. you have a food thing? Oh god, I have a ton of food things. <laughs> um, I, I for whatever reason everybody thinks sea urchin is so phenomenal. I do not like sea urchin in any capacity. I I don't like breaking them open. I don't like scooping them out. I don't like the flavor profile of them. I People put them on menus and it's like, oh, the urchin. It's like, no, not for me. Um, I, I I also, though, like taking the challenge of like, I don't, there's a lot of things that I don't particularly like. Like, I'm not a big fan of radishes. Um, it, the radish family is enormous. And I, I mean, I actually do like black radishes. I like daikon a lot. But like the traditional, you know, red, purple, white, small little bulb, Julie, they're beautiful. But I don't really like eating them. And uh they're easy to grow here. And I grow a bunch of them. And I had to challenge myself to be like, how am I going to get behind this to put this on my menu? And I do a fried radish salad right now with this rich Marcona almond dressing and orange oil and basil. And it's phenomenal. And and it's not fried in a batter. It's just pan fried in olive oil. So it gets like crisp on the outside. And I put a little bit of sugar to take a little bit of the edge off of the radish and get better caramelization. And I um, I love taking up the challenge. Like, this is what you have. This is what's growing here right now. You might not personally like it. Change the storyline. So I mentioned uh, having traveled throughout Europe in 2011. And when we were there, we spent some time in Greece. Mm-hmm. And before we got to Greece, I would always ask people in the different countries that we were visiting, what's one thing that I need to do or I need to eat or I need and, – and everybody invariably said, eat the tomatoes in Greece. You have to. Oh, yeah. And it was it was crazy. We were in – we went to, I think, 11 countries and like I said – Everybody said, eat the tomatoes in Greece. So we went there and it was the first thing I did. I I had to eat these tomatoes because everyone kept telling me to eat tomatoes. And they tasted so much different, so much sweeter than any tomato I've ever had in my entire life that it has stayed with me since to the point where I did a little bit of research. Like, why are there tomatoes so much different than the tomatoes that I grew up with here in the United States? And I came upon this article that said... That there are so many different strains of tomatoes, but we in the United States have only really picked out one strain and we've kind of populated all the grocery stores with this one strain. So that's how we understand tomatoes. 
we've also manipulated the ground that it, it's not able to grow a lot of these. And then you go back into like the same thing. Tomatoes and apples are probably the two biggest conversations of like the most common fruit and vegetables that people eat that have been so manipulated by our marketplace because and then you go back to like heritage tomatoes, heirloom tomatoes, heritage apples, you know, and and, and within those two varietals, there is easily hundreds of strains but that they're not grown commercially and they're not manufactured mostly based on shipping and shipping quality of how they're able to harvest early um, they're able to bring up to color and ripeness in manipulated facilities and that they're able to ship them on bumpy trucks on off roads on planes whatever without bruising or losing the infrastructure of the actual tomato you talk about things, and I mean, you're from here, so I mean, talk about the blueberry. Mm -hmm. You know, talk about an Alaskan blueberry to a commercial blueberry in the lower 48, and it, it's it's a horse of a different color. You know, basically from the Wizard of Oz. It's like our carrots. I mean, such a basic thing, an Alaskan carrot, because we have the 24 hours of photosynthesis here that the sugars come to the surface before the fiber actually gets to grow. So our carrots are richer in antioxidants, in vitamin C and vitamin D, but in sugar that they're like, it's it's like nature's candy, you know? It's mm -hmm. dirt candy in essence. And, and you grab a carrot from the lower 48 and it tastes like a horse carrot. Like you it's just so fibrous and you don't have any of that vibrancy. And and that's the thing with the Grecian tomatoes. And that's why I said also, when you shop for tomatoes in the winter, look for, they can and process, they come up to season real fast and then they can and process them all and you can find, and that tomato is going to taste better and be better for you as a canned product than a fresh product. They sell them. That's awesome. <laughs> okay, so... Switching gears a little bit here. Mm -hmm. I did some internet research on you, and I read that you graduated with a degree in mental health and social work. Mm -hmm. I have two questions about that. <laughs> so one, what motivated you to pursue a degree in mental health and social work? Um, I grew up in Detroit. And I could see, and I grew up in a fairly affluent family with a lot of resources. And I could see the juxtaposition of like that city infrastructure. I also grew up with uh, a family that placed a lot of value, uh, energy, and time on uh, service and servitude and understanding really like what that meant. Uh, in, in, I can't thank my parents enough for that. Uh, so going into college, you have all of these different emotions and all of these different thoughts and, you know, and I, I was classically misdirected and don't know what I want to do, but I knew I wanted to contribute. I knew I wanted, I knew I was a lucky one. I knew I had something and it was of my, um, obligation to try and give back. And so that's what drove me into social work and mental health. Uh, I was actually actually going for poli sci because I thought political science and politics were really interesting and diverse and helped create and sculpt the landscape. Uh, but it turned out after like hopping around colleges and six years that the degree I was closest to <laughs> was mental health and social work. So I just finished up with that. 
I worked in the field very briefly um, and had some real rough experiences and also realized like it's pretty easy as an indulged white girl growing up, you know, in a very diverse community to think, oh, I can save the world. And once you get actually into the brass tacks of it, it's it's pretty gritty. It's pretty hard. And it was a little too much for me. And basically, I ran away to Alaska and uh, and kind of licked my wounds and healed myself here. And that's where I fell into kitchen work. And the two actually overlap quite a bit. <laughs> and I want to get to that question, but I have one question that I just thought of before that is, if you don't mind, um, what were those situations that kind of turn you off on social work? I was very prideful um, and I was doing foster care home assessments at the time. And there is a, a very firm structure that you have to follow with that. And you always go with a partner and you always there's and basically you just have a checklist that you have to like do a home assessment. There's no personal evaluation in it whatsoever. You've got this list. You just go to the house. You check it all off. You turn it in. And it was uh, it was a late Friday afternoon, and uh, my partner that I was doing assessments with all day had a concert he wanted to go to, and I was like, I got this last one, and they had to be submitted for court dates the next week, and you know, you're just, I just felt overconfident in a situation, and I um, didn't realize the full impact of when you go into somebody's house and you're looking at their situation and you're filling out your checklist that you're talking about valuing or not valuing whether or not they can keep their child and this is back in the early 90s and crack was king in detroit and there was a lot of and uh i uh i got really um i got really hurt uh and i was thankful that i wasn't raped and i woke up in a hospital and well, you were attacked yeah, but it it just it was a situation that culminated out of a lot of in hindsight I don't feel like I was the victim. I feel like I brought some of this on to myself. Like it was I I broke rules of like two people going into a visit. I was a male female. I was, you know, a 21-year-old white girl in the inner city of Detroit, assessing whether or not somebody could keep their kid. And people, it was, we see all the time on the streets here, everywhere you go, when people are affected by drugs, they're not operating in like a conscientious state of mind. And uh, it was a situation that escalated really quickly. And I, I kind of brought myself to that doorstep. And I, it, it caused me, Great mental anguish <laughs> at the time. Mm -hmm. um, and I had the opportunity to retreat into Denali National Park and take a job at a lodge and sort of lick my wounds and reassess without the um, infrastructure of such an urban environment that I clearly thought I was bigger than or better for or whatever. I mean, I had a lot of ego and... Uh, and yeah, the situation wasn't good and the end result wasn't good, but everybody's got their stories. Everybody's got their struggles. And I uh, I 
was not prepared to do that job. And I have a massive amount of respect for people that can. I And that is like why I'm so dedicated to, you know, trying to help facilitate the crew at Beans Cafe in any way possible. I, I couldn't do their job every day. I couldn't face those like variables every day and feel successful. And, uh, but I have huge admiration for people that can. Absolutely. Yeah. It's a unbelievably tough job. Yeah. And you, you can't, you can't read into it any differently. It took me a long time to feel comfortable going back to Detroit, actually. And I, I now I do work with the youth boxing gym there. I do a lot of things back in Detroit uh, for fundraiser projects. And I really feel connected with that city. I still have friends that work in social work there, you know, 25 mm-hmm. years later that are still fighting the fight and doing all the good things. And I'm so proud of them. But uh, it wasn't that wasn't my trajectory. I was a little too self influenced to really read all to read the room correctly so the second part of that that question i think kind of dovetails that is uh in your experience is there an overlap in what you learned in college about people and what you've learned about people as a chef every day all the time (laughs) and you know i mean kitchens are kind of that like breeding ground. In Denali, it's one thing because it's a lot more removed. It's a lot more rural. But coming to Anchorage this year and trying to cultivate a team and hire people, everybody's got backstories. A lot of people have been to prison. A lot of people are like drug addicts that are trying to get over it. You know, a lot of people have dark skeletons in their closet. And I want to create an environment and an atmosphere that's open, but that's also like in that nurturing aspect where Mm -hmm. people feel they can leave all those demons at the door and be proud of what they're doing and then like eat healthier and 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 it's so visceral and it's so day to day it and hopefully those day to day create a long term impact but um but it's it goes it makes me a better chef it makes me a better kitchen manager it makes me a better boss and it makes me like a better visionary to work with other people so earlier you said that you kind of escape to Denali from Detroit. Mm-hmm. Do you feel like Denali gave you a second life, like a different path? Well, I mean, I was a child. Like, you know, anybody in their early 20s, like that's that's what that time is for. Absolutely, you, yeah. you, you, you grow up in a household, you're cultivated by, you know, different people's, your family, your parents, your, you know, your teachers, all of those different influences and you're like learning, grabbing, growing, and then you get thrown into college and you are like, okay, I'm going to try and figure out what I like. What's the music I really like? How do I really like to dress? Like, you know, what are my, like, am I a morning person? Am I a night person? Mm-hmm. You know, you you just start figuring all of these things out. And uh, I wasn't familiar with wild, natural, big spaces. And I don't think I knew how much I needed some of that to breathe deeper in my own skin to help me grow and figure out who I was. And uh, so I think that it was just the process of it all and what it gave to me and continues to give to me is what helps, you know, define the fiber of who I am. Do you ever look at that situation back in Detroit and draw strength from it? I mean, you said that you were scared of Detroit 
kind of going back there, but now, you know, you're working with the boxing uh, organization. Yeah, Books for Boxing. <laughs> it's a great little youth gym yeah. that um, combines tutorials and free educational and career advice. And then you, while well, you get that, then you earn boxing time. And so um, it's a great program. But um, yeah, no, I think that that also is like a level of maturity and who I was and how I view the situation and really coming to terms with the fact that I mean, although and when I tell the story and people naturally like lead to like, oh, you were victimized or you were attacked. It, it was a situation that happened that I put myself in. And I was also in the wrong, you know, like, I mean, it, it's hard to say that, but like I shouldn't have gone into that situation and broken the rules of the organization without going in there with a partner, without like like signing in before I went in with I mean, there was there was a lot of things that I didn't take the risks into accountability at the time. And it took me a long time, I guess, to let go of the fact that I brought some of that on myself. Um, and to be able to be like, okay, you know, don't be so ego driven, read the room, <laughs> take care of yourself, you have value. <laughs> so. You know, I, I don't know if I'm, um, so there's this theme that's kind of been following me this week and it happened initially well, with both two of my friends, one that I podcasted with yesterday and he's looking at all of this old footage of himself because he's putting together this documentary and um, he was talking about watching old footage of himself, right? And he's like, yeah, man, I, I don't, he's like, I think I might have been kind of a jerk. I don't really, I, I don't really <laughs> like my younger self. And um, my friend Tim, who's a teacher here in Anchorage, is like ironically doing a very similar thing where he's looking at old footage and he said, pretty much the exact same thing to me is he said he looked at footage of his younger self um, and he's like, I don't think I like my younger self. It's really difficult for me to look at that footage and hear, you know, the things that I'm saying and how, you know, pompous I am or whatever. And to both of them, I said uh, to Tim, I was like, Tim, you need to be nicer to young Tim. And to Micah, <laughs> I was like, you need to be nicer to young Micah because they weren't Young Micah and young Tim weren't, uh, they didn't have the experiences that you have now. Oh, sure. Yeah. No, I mean, I have a 16-year-old. I'm, I'm like, I'm watching him evolve into a brilliant and exceptional young man. And, and I am allowing him every grace and dignity to sometimes mean legitimately be a dick. And like, <laughs> be, a, like um, be like mis, misuse and misrepresent words and global view and the rest of it and, and try and create moorings for him to navigate without letting him be driven just by my mission or his dad's mission or that sort of thing and uh and it's it's wild i, I youthful exuberance th those are words that happen all the time and 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 pridefulness and that's part of growing up i, I don't deny myself any of these things i, I and i don't I just think it's all in this, I don't ever want it to be done growing and learning. Mm -hmm. And I don't want ever to be done like meeting new people and creating like like a, a deeper and bigger, I, it's such a gift. Life is such a gift. And 
I want to contribute. This summer, and albeit I've been in Denali for 25 years, this is the first summer I've been in Anchorage, there was somebody who was passed out on the middle of the street on like Tudor or something. Like that. It was like in the middle of the, like a four lane, like intersection. And there was like all this homeless little embankment on the corner there. And I pulled over and and somebody came over, one of the other people that I, I'm assuming are homeless. I, I don't know that. That's an assumption on my part. But they were, you know, standing on the corner. Okay. Came over. And I'm rolling this person over. And I was like, we have to get him out of the street, you know? And they're like, well, he, with the funding cuts, he lost his medication. He went off it for like two weeks. And then Medicare came back online this summer. And then he got his medication. But and so he probably took too much of it or his system didn't. And, you know, and obviously, you know, I mean, he was very intoxicated. And I, on, I don't know what substances or whatever. And... And so then I like asked a bunch of these people to help me like bring him over to the side lawn so at least he could lay down. And I'm talking to people about making sure that, you know, his airways are cleared. I'm like pinching him. I'm taking his temperature. I'm trying to get him to sit up. I'm trying to get him to sip water at this point in time. And I have a friend in the car with me and she wouldn't get out of the car. She's like, you don't know what you're doing. You're like, you're inviting craziness to the doorstep yet again. And it's like, <laughs> this is a society we live in. Like, this is yeah. what you do. And so then I went and I got everybody like a meal and more water and some Burt's Bees wipes and stuff like that. And then I just went and hang out with them for two hours and I listened to their stories of what they were talking about and how like you just listen to them. In and this camp or in this, this just area? Just the side of the road where there was like eight people that were hanging out. like. And you brought them food? Yeah, of course. Because you had food in your car? No, I went and got food. Oh, you went and got food, came back? Yeah. Wow. But it's because I don't – it's a society. Yeah. <laughs> this is what you do. And I wanted to make sure that this guy was at least not going to choke on his own vomit or sit up. I didn't want to call the police. They have enough to deal with. Like, I, you know, and I'm not like – I I am – I'm a part of this community. I, I don't think of myself – in any other capacity, but that's what you do. And and then, and they had such interesting stories and such interesting things to say about this was right after like the government shut down for the state and all the budget cuts happened and mm -hmm. all, like, like Francis home, like, all these places lost beds. There was, you know, and, and, and what their like take on it was because it was affecting their actual day-to-day -day lives. Mm -hmm. And, and the, the way they told the story about how this person Medicaid got cut and then it got reinstated. And like this was like an adverse affection to the like medication that he had to take for his heart. And yeah. I don't know a lot about native health or the rest of it. And it just gave me the opportunity. And they were like, who are you? And I'm like, I'm just a person. Like, And, and there's something fundamentally that I believe in like creating society and creating that. And, and everybody has a role to play in it. I have the opportunity and the love to do it through food. Um, but at the same time, I mean, I worry about all these people when you drive by and they're asking for money on corners or whatever. Like, they don't have enough water. And how are they staying clean? Mm -hmm. Like, basic things. And so I travel around with stuff in my car to always be able to pull over. And I understand giving money is not the effect. And it doesn't – it helps sometimes create more problems or that sort of thing. But if you give somebody – you know, some cookies and some water and some, you know, sanitizing wipes. It's something they'll use mm -hmm. and something they'll need. And I think that if we looked at our surroundings with a little more humanity, that will create a different tomorrow. How often do you do something like that? All the time. 
all the time. <laughs> Do you remember the first time you did it? I, I growing up. I mean, I grew up with that like thoughtfulness of servitude and the thoughtfulness of um, of trying to be aware of the situation. And I mean, I spent time working with the Jesuit Volunteer Corps. I spent time doing um, trips into like very crazy inner city situations in Houston and Chicago, um, just doing like Habitat for Humanity stuff or that that sort of thing. And and I just I I think that those big organizations are great like lighthouses for people to grab some more perspective. But then I think it's the day to day. And now living here in Anchorage and working in a kitchen and creating a kitchen in Anchorage, I mean I hire a lot of people that are right on that edge. And they could it one day could shift between their on this side of the fence or that side of the fence. And just to bring that, you know, any extra food that we have, we always bring my dishwashers, I'll take it with them and they stop by all these street corners where they know people congregate and just bring them food. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I like people around me that are at least thinking along those lines. Like and and understanding I'm not a big mover and changer. I'm not gonna affect like but I want to live in a society where you've got your hand held out versus closed up. What do you think it is about kitchens that attract a certain type of person? They're warm. They're nurturing. You get like you get to instant satisfaction by making something fantastic, like just as simple as a chocolate chip cookie and comes out of the oven and the whole kitchen smells like chocolate chip cookies. And somebody gets to walk through and grab one. Mm -hmm. And the joy it brings them for just a few minutes is more joy than most people get to bring to somebody like in a day. And you get to do that consistently over and over again. On the flip side, you get judged all the time and you misstep. And sometimes you overcook things or sometimes things burned (laughs) or something like, I mean, it's not it's not all like rainbows and unicorns. But um, but it's those moments where for me, and that ties back to the social work, mental health side of it, like I get to create and give something that's going to instantly give somebody pleasure or fulfillment or nourishment. And and I don't have to think about the huge big picture. It's just an instant transaction. And uh, it makes me feel pretty good. That's great. Um, I've always wondered that. You know, I've listened to Anthony Bourdain's uh, Kitchen Confidential book. Mm-hmm. And I don't really watch reality television at all, but I've seen clips, you know, of who's the guy that yells all the time? Gordon Ramsay. There we go. Yeah. Actually really delightful. I've heard that. (laughs) (laughs) But they seem like very honest places, Mm -hmm. kitchens. And by way of that, I guess they attract people. You said nurturing, right? So Mm -hmm. they're nurturing, they're honest, they're harsh, you know, it's. To me, that all kind of wraps up into they're a little bit more real than, like, say, your cubicle job. It attracts a certain kind of personality, for sure. And in, within that personality, it's fun to watch it play out. I mean, like I said earlier, I'm 47 years old. I work with a lot of people that are in their 20s and early 30s and a lot of boys. Kitchens are t- traditionally male-dominated atmospheres. And, okay. Um, 
And I get hushed by the, my servers all the time for like, sw- I swear like a sailor. <laughs> like, I, like, and I yell. Like, no. You haven't business. swore once in this podcast. I've been working really hard not to. <laughs> but um, I promised my mom I would try and clean that up. <laughs> and, um, but it's really, it's, it, but it's also like genuine fun. And there's a certain amount of like, let's not take ourselves too seriously, but let's try and be excellent mm-hmm. all the time and uh and it's it it breeds a like a um an energy and a vibe that not everybody enjoys but it certainly speaks to a lot of personalities and it um it's what resonates in my soul and so it's really nice to be able to kind of carry that through and and hang out with a bunch of people that i think are culinary gangsters culinary gangsters is that the name of your memoir no <laughs> <laughs> A memoir. That would involve a lot. <laughs> a lot of swearing. A lot of swearing. Yeah. I'm trying to work on that. I do I do say things like, and I, apparently they can, in my dining room up north, they can't, there's so much break between the kitchen and the dining room that people can't hear me when I yell. Mm-hmm. The dining room here at, at the museum too, and that's the Anchorage Museum. Like, yeah, yeah. Nobody, like, I, like, like, I was telling somebody to get their head out of their ass the other day and stop fucking the kitchen. And, <laughs> they, and apparently you could hear it all the way through the dining room. And I was like, Noted. (laughs) (laughs) So you just have to whisper next time. Yeah, I'm not good at that. I mean, (laughs) when you're standing there too, you don't realize how loud you're getting because you're under hoods and like the oven doors are opening and closing, timers are going off, gas is turning on and off. You just, you don't even, you're not even saying it out of like real anger. You know, you're just like, what is going on? And like, it's just in that, it's just a transaction, but it's not probably for everybody's that's been like having a great afternoon at the museum (laughs) and looking at the great exhibits of the north really want to walk in and be like get your head out of your effing ass (laughs) probably not so yeah it's a work in progress that's what i like to say about all of us all the time we're a work in progress (laughs) so i i wrote these i know we're kind of going long here and i hope i'm not keeping you from anything but and they're great i don't have my phone on me anyhow okay (laughs) um I just have like maybe one more line of questioning and then one more question. Okay, go. Um, you've been great, by the way. This has been amazing, <laughs> super educational. Um, so how does Top Chef fit into all this? You being a contestant on that show. <laughs> okay, well, truth be told about Top Chef, um, my son and I watched that show religiously. And it's so much fun. And I still watch back episodes of it. Uh, I was going through the start of a divorce, um, and it was February, and it was, you know, darkness, winter, Denali, you know, basically I was, you know, day drinking red wine, watching New Girl in between having the restaurant open in the evenings. New Girl's uh, great. And uh, they called me, and it was a cold call. I had never auditioned. I had not done any, like spec stuff i had never reached out i i thought it was a prank call to tell you the truth i thought my staff (laughs) were like oh we got her now we're gonna say we're calling from top chef but it was actually top chef calling (laughs) so um the next week they flew me out to do a screen test uh and then the next week they a week after that they cast me and i never did any of that preliminary like oh here's my video footage and here's me in the kitchen like any of those clips that you see sometimes on those shows i never did i just and then uh i in hindsight, really should have read the contract a little bit better because I didn't realize it was going to involve so much separation from my kid. And mm-hmm. uh, 
Uh, and how long a, was that separation? A seven-week shoot. Okay. And it's total isolation. You don't have access to, like, outside of screen time where they let you call on the producer's phone and they film you with it, you don't have any access to your life. You don't have computers. You don't have phones. You're not allowed to read books. You're completely encapsulated into the house. And... And you're not allowed to talk to people. You're not like it's very it's it's a very structured environment at that point in time. And and that's the way they run the show. And they were very transparent about it. I just didn't because I it wasn't ever anything I thought about or desired mm -hmm. to, to participate in. And then I'll send this opportunity and I'm like, oh, I'd be foolish not to take this opportunity. This is amazing. I'm doing this. And mm -hmm. then. And a lot of people, you know, they work with other top chefs. They train for the show. They like anyhow. Uh, so I ended up going on the show and I went on the show with the intention of that this was going to be the biggest opportunity for me to create like a culinary family that I didn't have in the interior because I never worked under anybody. I never trained under anybody. I didn't I don't have a bunch of chef friends that were all collaborating ideas on or that sort of thing. Yeah. And uh, and I walked away from that experience you know, with 14 of the best friends I could ever ask for and learned so much. And we still talk almost every day, all of us. And it, uh, and even though I didn't do really well on the show, because also I'm not comfortable on TV or, I mean, it just, there's, there was a variety of experiences that made that a very difficult challenge for me, but it was also the, the best and biggest, boldest move I've done in my life. And I walked away with it, with the, with the best takeaway and i would encourage anybody anytime when opportunity knocks on your door take it because you don't know where that's going to lead you and it's made me a better chef it's made me have better connections and it gave me 14 of the best chef friends i could ever ask for that's great so being a part of a contest like that competing against other great chefs i would imagine the level of energy and progression is pretty wild pretty high did you have any personal breakthroughs that that you still draw strength and experience from? Oh, on a daily basis. I mean, we could talk to each other all the time. I'm like, is salmon ice cream too much to push for? They're like, Laura. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> I mean, we, it's like, and, and then on an emotional level, like I'm having a really bad day and like Chris will call me from Brooklyn and he'll be like, I got you, sister. Like, you know, and, and, and then just thinking about different cuisines from, you know, like, understanding scrapple and applying that to like some of my reindeer offal and trying to like create a dish out of that that translates. We do collaboration dinners. I had Tanya up from um, San Francisco and she runs Brown Sugar Kitchen and she is a very influential African-American cook that does like very Southern style cuisine. And uh, and we did, um, we did like, you know, sort of this coast to coast thing where we brought Southern cuisine with Alaska seafood and reindeer and we created like gumbo with reindeer and we did this great menu and it happens all the time. I mean, I continue to grow and take away from that experience on a daily basis. And I'm super thankful for it. Uh, on the show, the the biggest thing was when you got eliminated, you went to the elimination house. You weren't allowed to leave the set. You had to stay on set the whole time. And so every basically two days, somebody else got eliminated. And it was in the, but we still had to participate in all the challenges that were public because where they were filmed, people couldn't know who was on the show or not on the show because the show is filmed six months before it airs. Oh, okay. And so so you're doing it then just for growth. And it was like going to the best culinary summer camp ever. You get access to all these ingredients. Like it, you don't have to every, – everything is paid for, you know, like – 
And you can really work with your peers and push the envelope and challenge different like recipe concepts. And it ends up being the coolest thing ever. I always thought they should film like the B-side, like here's the show. And then here's like, you know, the B-side of the album. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The Limb House. And and I I always thought that would be a great, because we really, I mean, and that's where those friendships and that's where those like, because you're no longer competing against each other. You're there at that point in time just to collaborate Mm -hmm. and grow and have fun and learn about each other. And it was like those, those, those weeks were the coolest weeks ever for me. That's really cool to hear that you created genuine friendships out of that situation because, uh, like I said, I don't watch reality television, but the reality television that I have watched, if it's contest-based, it seems very cutthroat and people can seem very mean to each other. Reality television, though, is just like that. It's reality television. You, mm-hmm. Every single person on every single show has somebody who's producing them and they're manipulating the story or they're choosing whatever clips they want to take to create a different narrative for you and whatever narrative they, they want to make, you know. Somebody's got to be a villain. Somebody's got to be the angel. Somebody's got to be the good person. They 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 spin your narrative to what works to sell the show. And all of it is real. But on a daily basis, there's times where you're like angry at somebody and then you're apologetic towards them. Yeah, yeah. Or you're, you know, and they just they are able to edit those moments together to draft a narrative that might not be representative of representative of the person who's actually engaged in that situation. Was it a little weird being a part of the show and seeing the real, like the actual reality of it, and then watching the show, and you're like, "Oh, okay." Like I never when you watched the show, oh, you never did. <laughs> um, yeah, no. <laughs> but in the day to day basis, having a mic pack on you and having cameras on you, sixteen hours a day, mm-hmm. and living in a dormitory style household with you know adult strangers mm-hmm. um it feeling very like a fish out of water i mean i came from denali national park and i i didn't all of these people people had worked for charlie trotter people had worked for, i mean people had worked for marcus samuelson people had you know i mean i have three at that point in time i had three james beard nominations you know and now i have four but that I'd, I'd, I'd never been on that circle and everybody has, everybody was like, you know, peacock feathers were out. Everybody's trying to like, oh, I'm like the king of pasta over here. Oh, I do this over here. Oh, oh yeah, I saw you at this event or, and I don't have any, I didn't have any of that like repertoire conversational like mm-hmm. standpoint. And, and it, um and I, it was really isolating and it took a while to sort of not be afraid. I mentioned that I listened to the audiobook of uh, Kitchen Confidential. Mm-hmm. And there's a chapter where he explains, Anthony Bourdain explains uh, his chef toolkit, which included uh, a good chef's knife, an offset serrated knife, a heavyweight pan, those types of things. Mm-hmm. What does your toolkit look like? That's so interesting because actually I have had the indulgence and luxury of just working out of a kitchen that's entirely mine and crafting like basically an entire workshop of stuff that's just mine. Going on Top Chef, you're allowed to bring eight tools with you and nothing else. And uh, and and so it became really important to start to pick out what those tools were because I have never had to edit down Mm -hmm. (laughs) capacity. and I think it that also like taught me a lot, even in that packing process. And I think that uh, a really good chef's knife, a, a good spatula, a set of uh, fish tweezers is really important to have. 
a, a flexible boning knife, at least one, if not two spoons. Spoons are really the backbone of a lot of things. You can use them as a ladle. You can plate with them. You can use them as a spatula, that sort of thing. Uh, kitchen tongs um, are definitely like a must for me. And that would be about it. You don't need, you know, 29 knives. You don't need, you know, like a, a boning knife, a really good chef's knife, you know, paring knives for like berries and pastry or, but spoon, spatula, fish tweezers in Alaska, a must. Like if you got to pull pin bones, you got to be able to do it fast, mm -hmm. you know? And, uh, yeah, that would, that would about sum it up. For sure. How about some brands that you swear by? I think that's a very personal thing, like people's clothing choice and people's I, – I think that keeping your stuff tight is what's really important. Making sure that your edges of your tweezers, I sandpaper them to be able to like make sure I'm keeping that edge to pull pin bones without breaking the flesh. Um, keeping your knives sharp. I use Japanese steel because it's easier to keep sharp, but you have to sharpen it more frequently. Um, I do not like any knife that has a butt on it because I like to have a clean blade all the way through to do like longer fillet work or that sort of thing. Um, but I think that people know where they feel comfortable with their grip, their hand, it, you know, it's just the same thing. as like, do you wear Converse or Vans? Like it's a personal choice. Yeah, and yeah. I, I don't really feel that, um, that that's something that you can like solicit. I, I, what I don't like is when people try and brand shop or have knife kits or anything like that, especially, and it's so fun to see in culinary students because they're so excited about their knife kits, but it's all one brand. And so like it, one brand can't fulfill all of your, like, it, it's like saying there's only one kind of food, yeah. you know? And, um, uh, you know, I think that if you talk to like, I have mad respect for like really good butchers, you know, whole animal slaughtery, that sort of thing, even from like, you know, the slaughterhouse where you're just like gutting and eviscerating the animal, like as fast as you can do that, those people are working with, you know, basically 20, $25 knives that are sharp as F and like, that's like a brilliant thing, you know, mm -hmm. and, um, watching and being a part of that. I think that it's not necessarily... I mean, steel and dollars, it all equates at some point in time, but that it's, um, I think it's as utilized tools are the best tools. Okay. That's awesome. That does it for all my questions. Do Good. you have anything else you'd like to add? No, it's cool to talk to you. <laughs> yeah, thank you for being on the show. All right. Thanks for having me. <laughs> For more information about how you can support local grassroots journalism, go to www.patreon.com slash crude magazine. Crude Conversations is written, hosted, and produced by me, Cody Liska, for Crude Magazine. Music was produced by Alcoda Beats.